Hello, sunshine. Hello, sunshine. Hello, sunshine. Gotta make hay while the sun shines. What's this? This is Hello, Sunshine. What if by sharing our stories, we could change the world? Welcome to Hello, Sunshine. I'm Kelly McCreary, and this is How It Is, the show where women tell their own stories in their own words. We're unfiltered, real, and totally ourselves. Today, we're talking souvenirs. As we go on this big old journey of life, what do we keep with us for the ride? You're a queen. So I have a question for you. When I say souvenir, what do you think of? A flattened penny or a keychain with your name on it or maybe a novelty license plate or a fridge magnet? So I'm not much of a collector of objects, at least. I like to keep things pretty minimal. I do have a box of birthday cards because you ever notice how nobody really handwrites anything anymore? I keep all these handwritten birthday cards because they just feel so special. I also have a souvenir to remind me of this stunning turquoise sequin dress I wore to an awards ceremony in the form of a group of scars on my left arm. So I don't know if you guys know this, but sequins are beautiful, but they are deadly. I spent the entire night itching and fussing in this dress, thinking that it was just some issue I had, only to find when I took the dress off that it had been making tiny cuts into my skin. Ah, sometimes that discomfort you feel is teaching you something, and sometimes it is just leaving a scar. So let's find out what some of our storytellers' favorite souvenirs are. My favorite souvenir that I own. My favorite souvenir that I own. So the souvenir that I own, that I carry around. Snow globes, any snow globe. Seashells from vacations. Is a mug that I got in Japan that has all the faces of the sumo wrestler champions. Is my boyfriend who I found in England and brought to America with me. I don't technically own him, but I own his heart. A dream, a picture, my dream on a piece of paper. There's a necklace that I always wear, and it's a cone gel necklace from Hawaii that my sister and I got in on our vacation in 2008 and we both wore it all the time. It's just these little things that connect me to my family now that I can't, you know, have them around very much. Maybe the best souvenirs are things that we can't see, touch, or feel, but they've left marks on us to help us remember where we've been and where we are going. Today you'll hear from psychiatrist Robin Berman on a souvenir that she inherited from her husband's first marriage, and Hilary Frank about a secret souvenir that she always keeps with her. But first up, Rosanna Duruthi. She's lived like nine lives on her way to becoming the head of global diversity, inclusion, and belonging at LinkedIn. She spends her days trying to get a more diverse group of people into the room where it happens. This is so important to her because she has gone through life without that very expensive souvenir. That little piece of paper that often holds so much power over what jobs you can get, who you meet, and how much money you can earn. A college degree. 
I was a precocious kid, always had a lot of questions. I bored pretty easily and skipped first grade, principally because my mom taught me how to read and write uh, before I even began kindergarten, and did so well academically that I skipped eighth grade, which had me going to Harvard, graduate high school at 16. My dad was from Cuba and my mom is from Puerto Rico, and education was seen by both of them as absolutely imperative. You know, growing up, there wasn't even a question about whether I'd go to college. There was really not even a question about a profession. It was a question of whether I'd be a doctor or a lawyer or a journalist. It was almost inconceivable that I wouldn't be getting my degree or that I wouldn't have the opportunity to finish Harvard. Everything I had planned centered around my going to Harvard, graduating at 20, going to Harvard Law School, being out by 23. I pretty much had my life mapped out. My parents, after 20 years of marriage, were having an incredibly difficult time, and my father hadn't paid my tuition. So I filed for a formal leave of absence. So I thought, okay, I'll be back, and really didn't think I was leaving permanently. I got home, and my parents weren't sleeping in the same room. There weren't any conversations. They were just arguments. And my mother was concerned for me and wanted to send me to Puerto Rico, where her family was, so I'd be able to stay with my grandmother and, and my aunts. And I was afraid to leave her alone. So I pretty much said to her, if you want me to go, you'll have to come with me. Came back from Puerto Rico six or seven months later with my mother. We came to return to the house. Uh, my father had changed the lock so that we wouldn't be able to enter. And we pretty much found ourselves, you know, locked out, out on the street. My mom felt immensely guilty. But with her guilt, I also felt this responsibility to prove to her that everything was okay and that she had done nothing wrong. She felt guilty that she had gotten a divorce. She felt guilty that I didn't have the education that was so much promised to me. I was a little bit of a spiral into realizing I wouldn't be going back to Harvard. You know, for a period of a couple of years, the idea of returning to school was something that I thought was just six months away. Next term, next semester, I'd be able to do so. A lot transpired before the moment came when I thought, okay, this is my fate. I need to keep working. In so many ways, it was fitting of this paradox of my life where I've always been different. You know, growing up, I was Latina, but given that I'm also black, people often mistook me for being American and would speak about me in school in Spanish, imagining I didn't understand. And although I'm black, I wasn't considered black enough because of my Hispanic heritage and Spanish being my first language. And so it wasn't unusual for people to talk about me in English, imagining that I couldn't speak English fluently. As I grew up and as a young adult, recognizing that I was gay, it just always seemed that I had one more version of the other. To be a woman growing up in a Latino household where men are preferred and given privileges and women are expected to play a certain role, 
to be a woman of color in a society, there was this expectation of having to demonstrate your worth or your value as a person of color. To be that person who speaks as often is described so articulately that people who haven't met me in person would presume that I'm neither Latina nor black. So being different just seemed to be my fate and not completing my degree became just a continuation of that otherness. Not having the degree definitely is probably the the biggest souvenir. By the time I turned 33, I had spent almost a decade working in financial services, and I was working for an investment bank, and I became a vice president. And I was going to a weekend college because I still felt the burden of, I need to have a degree to prove myself. And I was waking up at two in the morning to study until six and then go to class. It was one of those mornings when I was really exhausted and I thought, why am I working so hard to get a bachelor's degree when I'm a vice president now? And it was in that moment I began to recognize that I had been living inside of this myth, that having the degree would in some way validate my intelligence or my existence, not taking into account that I worked hard and I had a tremendous work ethic. And I was gifted with the intellect to be discerning and to understand things and to constantly seek complexity of ideas. It was in that process that I also recognized that the successes I had created were largely given from this agility to learn on the spot. I didn't have the preconceived notions. The work that I'm doing today isn't anything I could have studied for. Diversity didn't exist when I began my undergraduate career. I recognized so much of what we take as a given isn't. That's been the power for me of not having the degree. I love this. As a woman who also works hard to fight systemic injustice in the workplace and in the world, Rosanna, I'm so grateful for the work that you do. I remember it being so important to me and my family that I went to college. As a black woman, I know that I already make 38% less on average than what a white man makes and 21% less than what a white woman makes. And I was told my entire life that going to college could help to bridge that gap. And I did go to college. I studied history at Barnard College at Columbia University, and I wouldn't give that experience up for anything. But I didn't necessarily use my degree for what I was, quote, supposed to do. I'm doing air quotes. You can't see me. My greatest takeaway from that time, as it has been for all of my experiences, is the friendships I made and that I carry with me today. Rosanna, you're changing lives with or without that one souvenir. So there's something you should know about me. I am definitely someone who believes in the supernatural. Like, if you told me that every time you see a rainbow, you just know that your mom is looking down on you, I'd believe you. Or that your grandma, who died three years ago, still lives in your house, I would not bat an eyelash. That's why when I heard our next storyteller Robin Berman's story, it made total sense to me. But funnily enough, 
She's the kind of person who definitely doesn't believe in the supernatural. In fact, her entire career is based upon the scientific method. She is a psychiatrist at the University of California, Los Angeles, specializing in early childhood development. She literally wrote the book, okay, she wrote a book, on parenting called Permission to Parent. I met my husband at an all-girls night out. I mean, leave it to the guy who shows up to an all-girls night out. And it was I was just in the place of a, having a girly, girly night, and I get stuck sitting next to the only guy. And I started asking him questions, and he said that he, his wife had passed away and that he had a son. And I was thinking, how could somebody, you know, at 32 already have had such a tragedy? And he had like a four-year-old son at the time. And I was thinking as a psychiatrist, who can I get him to see for grief counseling? And who do I know who's, who would be a great fix-up for him? And meanwhile, he was thinking we were going to get married, which <laughs> if somebody would told me I was going to marry him, I would have given him a million dollars at the time. He sent me a letter that night saying that he never connected to anyone since his wife passed away and that he would cherish a friendship with someone like me. And I did not find the letter for four years. So I went through all my training through ob through surgery, through delivering babies, through pediatrics, and then decided on psychiatry. And I was saving my pediatric journals. And so I decided to go through each of them. And out falls a letter from him marked four years before. So there's a number at the bottom, and I call him up, and I said, I'm so sorry, I don't know if you remember me, but I met you four years ago. And he said, Robin. And I said, yeah. And he said, are you still in Chicago? I'm going to be there tomorrow night. I live in California, but I'm I'm like, really? You're going to be in Chicago tomorrow night? I was so dumb, I actually believed that story. He said, I have a meeting, and in retrospect, he, he did make a meeting. Our story kind of began on karma and kindness and continued. So I find myself falling in love with a widowed guy with a kid. I mean, the last story that I think would ever be my story. Finishing residency, young, marrying a widowed guy with a child. So I also love children, so I was kind of excited about it. Little did I know he was less excited about me. To lose a parent um, before the first three years of life is a very, very difficult thing because that's your biggest brain growth in your life. The second period is adolescence. The first period is those first three years. Trauma is stored in a different way. And attachment and love and neuropathways are created in those first three years of life. And your brain expands through love and connection. So that kind of loss is locked in in kind of a primal part of your brain and needs to be through love healed and remapped and rewired. And it, it's, a, it's a giant challenge, which is why nobody ever forgets their childhood, because it's literally locked into the structure of your developing brain. He kind of looked like me, which was strange. We had the same coloring, and I was so excited to just shower him with love and embrace him. And I love children. And he was sad incredibly anxious that I was going to take away his dad, very resistant to receiving any kind of love. If you touched him, he would cringe. If you made him food, he would say he was not hungry. And I kept thinking, I got to stay in the room because I have an opportunity to transform this child. But what happened was everybody had felt sorry for him growing up. So and his father had kind of spoiled him and forgotten that 
that giving limits is a very loving thing to do. And my husband kind of missed that lesson. And so I would say, honey, can you clear your plate? And he would say, I don't clear plates. I was like, you do now. Hate me now. Thank me later. And so it began our conflict. Here's the woo-woo part of the story. (laughs) I kind of tag-teamed with his deceased mom, who I never met. Okay, there I said it. (laughs) That's the woo-woo part. We are still constantly tag-teaming parenting. Get tears in my eyes as I say it. At the height of our conflict, we went on for like three years of I'm just going to keep loving him. You know, everyone kept telling me, you're trying too hard. You came too late. It's hopeless. I, I don't believe in hopeless. So I kept going, marching along. And then one day I hit a wall of him being very entitled and disrespectful. And I thought, gosh, if I had given birth from the beginning, I would have the strength to say, that's not okay, as opposed to like the Stepford mom, like, oh, sweetie, darling, honey, clear the plate. So I told him basically the truth about how I thought he was behaving and where he needed to grow. And all he said through tears, he listened to me was, I don't think backing away is a very good idea. And that's all I needed. That was all the words I needed to continue. Then after that, of course, I felt very guilty because here I, this poor little sweet guy was bawling and I did something crazy. I went upstairs in my house and I talked to a person who no longer lives. This is where I was at. I literally was like, you need to help me. You left me halfway through the woods with a child. You, you, we are co-parenting here. You're the mom in heaven and I'm the mom on earth and we're going to do it together. And I need a sign that I did the right thing. And you need to make it very real and very specific. So out of my oldest son's room was a thing of balloons we had given him for graduation. One broke free and went down a hallway and hovered over my head and it said, congratulations. I was thinking that was as clear a sign as I needed, but maybe I was a psychiatrist who was hallucinating because how could this possibly be? And all of a sudden I called up my husband. I said, what do you see? He said, I see you on the floor and a balloon over your head saying congratulations. So that's all I needed to continue. Okay, we're tag teaming parenting. I got it. As he's going to college, he says, do you want to read my college essay? And I thought for sure he was going to write about being an athlete. And the first line of the story was, I tried so hard not to love her. But when somebody does write by you, and then at that point I was crying so hard, like Oprah calls it the ugly cry. (laughs) I was in the ugly cry. I think when you have that kind of a counter, it's the same as like being given a a Prozac or something, you get a boost of serotonin because you feel like there's a master plan and that we're all connected. I'm so moved by this. If there was ever a supernatural souvenir that I'd want, I'd want the blessing and support of someone looking after me. Our next storyteller has helped me think differently about all the scars we carry with us as souvenirs from our experiences. They can be as mundane as a hike in the hills or as transformative as giving birth. 
Hillary Frank is an author, illustrator, and creator of the award-winning podcast, The Longest, Shortest Time. She also has a secret souvenir, and she is ready to share it with the world. Giving birth comes with a lot of souvenirs. A baby, for one. Disposable mesh underwear, which you get to take home with you from the hospital. And nine years ago, when I had my daughter Sasha, there's something else I kept. My scar. It's a scar you'd never know I have because it stays hidden inside my underpants. I wear regular ones now, thank you very much. But this nearly invisible souvenir has wreaked havoc in my life. I got the scar from an episiotomy during childbirth. That's when they cut your vaginal tissue to help get the baby out. A week after Sasha was born, I discovered the episiotomy stitches had busted, and I had to go back to the doctor to get recut and restitched. It took two months for that wound to heal. But long after I could sit flat on my bottom and run up a flight of stairs, something else was a problem. Sex. My midwife had warned me to expect sex to be painful for up to a year. But the more I did it, she told me, the more my scar tissue would stretch and the better it would feel. Okay, I thought, I'll just fake it till I make it. But as it turns out, faking it is pretty impossible when you feel like, well, like you're being stabbed in the vagina. Let me pause for a second and say, I know that many women suffer from sexual dysfunction, that they can't have penetrative intercourse without pain. For me, this was new. I became terrified of intimacy. I used breastfeeding and sleep deprivation as an excuse. Sorry, honey, boobs are leaking and I'm pooped. But the truth is, I couldn't imagine ever having sex again. I couldn't even bear to think about other people having sex. Actually, any form of romantic touch could send me over the edge. I remember going to the theater with my husband and... The guy in front of us was tenderly stroking his date's neck. It was as irritating to me as if someone had been kicking the back of my chair. Could you stop it already? I'm trying to watch a show here. I saw doctor after doctor asking what was wrong, what could be done. The first one kept me waiting pantsless on a table for an hour. She took a quick look, poked around, and said nonchalantly, the scar tissue's too tight, we'll just give you another little snip. She air-scissored her fingers. The next doctor told me I looked absolutely normal. There was no reason I should be in pain. But since I was in pain, the thing I should do was have another baby as soon as possible, because then I'd tear open along my scar line, and tears apparently heal better than incisions. But I don't think I want another baby, I told her. Wow, she said, as if she'd never met a mom who didn't crave multiple children. This really did a number on you, huh? Another doctor told me I was in pain because I was a redhead and I had sensitive skin. She prescribed me estrogen cream, which was supposed to soften the scar tissue. If that didn't work, we'd move on to testosterone cream, though that could really overboost my sex drive, she told me, and possibly cause facial hair growth. If the hormone creams didn't work, she suggested a little surgery. We'd simply graft some skin from the inside of my vagina and pull it over the scar to the outside to create a little extra padding over the injury. You'll never be a centerfold model, she said, chuckling, but it should work. None of these doctors' options felt like real options. So I started wishing that sex was not a thing. And I don't just mean I wished that I didn't have to do it anymore. I wished it was a thing that humans would stop doing, period. Period. 
because maybe then I wouldn't feel so much pressure to perform. But I kept trying to perform. Sometimes I'd shut my eyes, grit my teeth, and hold my breath through the pain. Of course, my husband, being the good guy that he is, said he didn't want to do it if it was hurting me. I felt bad, though, that my pain meant he was denied pleasure. What if he started looking for sex elsewhere? He said he wouldn't, that he wanted us to figure this out together. But what if we never figured it out? I don't want you to do anything you don't want to do, he'd say. And so, I didn't. For a full year. All in all, it was three years of ouchy sex or no sex at all. During that time, I did not feel like myself. Or I was another version of myself. Ghostlier, number, deader. It was as if all the parts of me that were light and fun and flirty had evaporated. And all that remained were the caregiving parts. Providing food, cleaning up poop, and teaching a tiny person not to be a jerk. One day, I was looking on a local listserv, and I saw someone mention a gynecologist she liked. How attentive she was. What a good listener. That didn't describe any gyno I had ever seen. So I made an appointment. This doctor, a freckly woman about my age, was the gyno of my dreams. She did listen to every detail of my sob story without rushing me. She shook her head in dismay at every horrible solution I'd heard from other doctors. You're really mangled down there, she said when she examined me. You're actually not anatomical. She must have seen my face drop because she quickly added, I know that's not a thing you want to hear about your vagina, but the way you were put back together is off. Off, while certainly better than mangled, is also not a thing you want to hear about your vagina. This doctor suggested that I try pelvic floor physical therapy. She also gave me the number of a vulvar surgeon. I needed them both. Physical therapy helped me a ton. But some injuries need an extra push. Enter the vulvar surgeon, a red-faced man with receding white hair and pointy eyebrows like the Count from Sesame Street. As soon as he got his pudgy gloved fingers inside me, he seemed to know what the problem was. A neuroma, he told me with a toothy grin. The Count squeezed one spot between his fingertips, the tenderest spot. That hurt, he asked. Yes, I shouted, arching my back. Right there? He squeezed harder. Yes, yes, there. He let go. Yep, that's an aroma. An aroma is a thing that can happen in scar tissue, where your nerves get kind of balled up and form a painful lump under your skin. It's one of the most basic injuries you can get from surgery of any kind, anywhere on your body. It is astonishing that it took three years for someone to catch something this common. You're lucky you found me, the Count said, with the distinct cockiness of a guy who fixes vaginas for a living. Most women just give up on sex forever. Good for you for being persistent. The Count scheduled me for a procedure. He said he'd rub two kinds of medicines into the neuroma, cortisone and marcaine, and bam, that should take care of my pain. A few weeks later, I went to the hospital and let this guy put me under and do his thing. When I woke up, he told me that he'd mashed that medicine in there pretty good, so it might hurt once the anesthesia wore off. 
The pain was excruciating. I spent a week lying in bed with an ice pack between my legs. At my checkup with the Count, I lay on his exam table, asking him why it wasn't better yet. Ooh, he said, turning his head in what I can only describe as delighted disgust. Looks like someone hit you with a baseball bat. That someone, of course, was him. He assured me the bruises would heal soon. He told me to get dressed and meet him at the front desk with my husband, who'd driven me to the appointment. There, the Count presented us with six packets of lube— Use these, he said. You'll need them. The Count turned to my husband. No penetration, he said sternly. Not yet. Wait at least a couple of weeks. Even if she thinks she's ready. I mean it. Okay, my husband said with a nervous laugh. But the Count wasn't done. Just the tip at first. That's all. You stop. Then you ease back in a little at a time. Got it, my husband said. Dude had a weird bedside manner. But that no-penetration thing worked. For a while, sex was still scary as shit, but the gradual ramping it up technique made it less so, until eventually things felt normal, mangled vagina or not. The truth is, though, I'd had a breakthrough of my own just months before the Count worked his magic, a win that came in the unlikely form of Hurricane Sandy, the superstorm that ravaged the Northeast in 2012. That night, my husband and I pulled Sasha's mattress out of her crib and moved it to the floor in our bedroom. We were afraid of a tree branch or something crashing through her window. And then, there we were. Child sleeping, no power, no heat. We went to the living room, made a fire, lay some blankets on the rug took off our clothes, cozied up. Outside, transformers were exploding. Hundred-year-old trees were ripping out of sidewalks, crashing into roofs. Inside, I was taking a giant risk. I was reacquainting my body with my husband's, something I hadn't had the guts to do in years. I remember sort of talking myself into it. Not in a get-this-over-with way, but in a give-this-a-chance way. Because no matter how much I wish it, the world is not going to stop having sex. And if I don't get flattened by a gigantic tree trunk tonight, it might just be worth getting another doctor's opinion. Yes, it'll suck if I find out there's no real solution to this problem. But what if there is? What a shame it would be to live the rest of my life not having found it. To just give in forever to the food-feeding, poop-cleaning, manners-teaching version of myself. As it turned out, I didn't have to. Thank you, Hillary, for sharing such a personal story about your personal parts. It is so rare and so important to talk about mothers and women's sexuality at all points in our life. And I'm so glad that you're launching that conversation. Ooh, and how many of you were audibly gasping? I was I was actually squirming and like kicking. <laughs> involuntarily when she was describing the different gynecologists she went to. Mangled and snip are never words that we want to hear, especially about our vaginas. 
You can find more hilarious and tragic and relatable stories in Hillary's forthcoming book called Weird Parenting Wins, which will be out in January 2019. Next week is the final episode of this season. I can't believe we're almost finished with the season's journey. But what would a show about journeys be if we didn't talk about going home? And what about when you make a home with your new boo, which is what comedian Phoebe Robinson talks to us about. Because I travel so much for work, a lot of times to L.A., but other places as well, and Bay travels so much for work, sometimes I'm like, home is just if the two of us are together. I'm Kelly McCreary, and I am a woman, a patient of doctors, and a carrier of many scars. next week. In the meantime, visit us on social at Hello Sunshine and use the hashtag HowItIs. I want to know what all of your favorite souvenirs are. Go to Hello-Sunshine to find the transcript for this episode and more goodies. On this episode of How It Is, you heard from Rosanna Duruthi, Robin Berman, and Hilary Frank. How It Is is a production of Hello Sunshine. It is executive produced by Amy S. Choi, Charlotte Coe, Rebecca Lehrer, and Reese Witherspoon. Our senior producers are Kara Hart and Michelle Lands. Our development producer is Mary Phillips Sandy. Sound designed by Jocelyn Gonzalez. Our theme song, Queen, is written and performed by Victoria Canal. I feel like I'm getting the hang of this. (laughs) 